What's up, Catching Up With Cub listeners? We are on a mission to make this podcast Australia's number one entrepreneurial podcast. And if you enjoy listening, you can help us do so by rating us five stars and leaving us a review. Your reviews will help other listeners find our show and it lets me know what you want to hear more of. I'm so incredibly grateful for your support. Now let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club, connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, I catch up with Cub member Alex Harding, the CEO of Dataforia, a company that's named after the feeling you get when data works for you. This conversation is a big reminder and eye-opener that digital marketing is not the only marketing medium we can utilize. Alex is an expert in providing companies databases of potential clients, so providing us leads and helping you with ways to make a positive impact on those companies. He's a very smart guy, which you're about to notice. It's a really eye-opening episode. Enjoy the show. First of all, thank you for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. No, I've, I mean we got to this conversation, we got to this podcast because uh, you were well, because you were actually helping us with our, um, I, I guess what would you call it, da- database lead management. It's, it's funny you say that. It's data driven marketing. Data driven, which, which now everyone is a data driven marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you distinguish between the real data driven, the real data driven marketers to the to the phonies? Well, everything is now data driven, which is great but also bad. So 12 years ago I set up Dataforia and it was a data-driven marketing agency and I went out and explained Dataforia, which is a cheesy name I came up with in a heartbeat. And I'll, <laughs> it's I'll, a cheesy it's, name. It's Dataforia <laughs> is, is, is the feeling you it's get when though. data works for you. <laughs> That's what it is. And that used to be on the business card. We had to take it off when we started working with banks because, you know, it's a bit cheesy. Um, but the reason is if you think about the feeling you get when data doesn't work for you, when you've got loads and loads of data everywhere or you just don't have any data and you don't know what the hell's going on, you feel bad. So when data works for you, the idea is that you you start to get an understanding as to what's going on and you start to get an understanding as to who's doing what and why they're doing it and how they're behaving and then you start to work out how you can leverage it. So mm-hmm. ideally, you you know, you can spend a little bit less money um, reaching the right people and getting a good ROI. So everything's around really just making sure it's measurable. So that the reason it was called Dataforia was We've never run a campaign we couldn't measure. We turn down campaigns where we don't believe it's going to actually going to be able to be measured. <laughs> I love the name more, having understand understanding why it's called data for you. What did you say? The feeling you get when data works for yeah. you. <laughs> it was. It, it's, it's, it's That's a, awesome. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, good. And 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 um, how did you get into this space? Where, I mean, let's start with you. Yeah. Where, where are you from? Where? How did you grow up? Did you come from a family or business or? No, actually. Um, I came from the most risk-averse family in the universe. Um, when people say they come from a family of business, I'm always really a little bit jealous. Um, so, you know, I remember my family would, were saying things along the lines when I set up a company of, you know, at what point do you decide you've failed and give up? You know, what, what, what happens if you haven't paid the bills next month? What have, you, have you worked out what would happen if, you know, you realised that there was only a finite amount of data you could sell and then it ran out? And I realised these are all people that should never be in business because if you're asking yourself all the reasons why you're going to fail and what you're going to do when it fails and you're not focusing on how am I going to make this bloody well work, then you're going to fail. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so my background was brought up in a, in a provincial town in England. 
Um, went to school, didn't find many things I was interested in until I, I, I was interested in media. Um, funnily enough, always liked media, always liked maths, and, and hence there's now data for you with a maths test to enter. Um, but I really enjoyed um, watching television and thinking about the way people watch TV ads and things like that. Um, I thought I wanted to work in telly for a while. I used to make films when I was at school. So I got my mates to dress up as gangsters and pretend to shoot each other and have knife fights. And I got friends to dress up and make pop videos with me and, and, and made all these different videos. And, and I carried on doing that at uni with media. I even met a girl in a nightclub and convinced her I was a TV producer, which was an exaggeration. I, mean, I had more of a media project to do. And she was um, singing in a nightclub I worked in and we did a documentary on her. And she, she remember that song, I Need a Miracle? Yeah. That was Coco. I met her in a club and then before <laughs> anyone else had ever heard that song and then did a documentary on her and it was really fun. Um, and then I managed to wing some work experience. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of winging it, if I'm honest. I, I had, uh, this is a bit, of, a bit of a fun advice. If anyone wants to break into something where it's really, really competitive, media is extremely hard to get into. I worked out that unless you give yourself a leg up, you're never going to get a chance. So I, I got a distinction at university, which sounds great, but then there's probably 2,000 people in a year in, in the UK get a distinction in something like media and don't get a job in the media. So I, um, I called a local newspaper and I asked to speak to the guy that owned it. And I said, I'd like to interview you on how to get into the media. And he said, okay. So I went along and I did this interview with him about how to get into the media. What, what does it take? You know, what's good? To, you know, what do you really need? And, he, and he, we had a great time doing the interview. Where did you say you were from? I just said I was a student. I was going to do it. And uh -huh. I, was gonna, I, was gonna, I needed other students to understand, you know, how do you actually get into this? You're doing all these years of study, but how do you actually get a job? And at the end of it, I said, this was fun, wasn't it? He said, yeah, yeah, it was great. I said, well, what, I'm going to do a few of these. Would you publish them? He said, yeah, yeah, I'll publish those. That'd be great. I said, okay, great. So with his backing, I then approached the head of a local radio station, um, the head of recruitment for a TV sh um, station that did TV news locally. Um, and, and I went out and interviewed them as well. And, and I, so I asked them, you know, how do you get a job in the media? What does it take? What does the person need to have in their background and their tenacity and all these different things? to get a job and, and we did it and we recorded the interviews and, and at the end of it I said, okay, well, did, you know, funny enough, thinking about this, you said you need A, B and C. I've done those things. Can I have a job? <laughs> and <clears throat> so when I was at uni I ended up um, running for Capital Radio Group, two radio shows on weekends. Um, I ended up with a TV traineeship um, and then off the back of the TV traineeship, I managed to get myself some PR work experience in London. I ended up doing a BBC News traineeship as well, which was fantastic. And I loved it. It was really, really good fun. Um, and then I went around the world for a year. And I went around the world thinking, you know, I was going to go back and work in telly. And I got back and realised that the work experience I'd done, I ended up really good at VT editing, which is like, you know, news editing. So sitting in a room with video cameras being told what to do by the journalist. And I realised it wasn't really for me. I was more, I actually really enjoyed more the process and the people. So I decided advertising was more suited. So same sort of line. Um, so I became a media buyer, media planner buyer in the UK, which means I help people to work out how to spend their money more effectively on media. So if they're going to buy TV ads, for example, which shows they're advertising, who's actually watching, how do you get the, the lowest cost to advertise to the right people in the right way? So if you're a media buyer, there's five things you need to think about. Um, you need to think about reach, frequency. So reach is what portion of your um, accessible audience are you actually going to hit. Frequency is how often you're going to hit. Continuity is for how long you're going to run that campaign. Coverage is for what portion of the whole market. So, you know, if you're in Australia, you're going for Sydney or New South Wales or you're going for Australia. And then impact, which is the one that everyone always forgets. 
impact is the most important thing, which is what you and I were talking about with, with how you found me in the club in the first place. You sent me something that excited me and I wanted to know what it was. That impact is, is absolute key. So I spent um, the next year in the UK running advertising campaigns across charities um, and some dot-coms. So it's just before the dot-bomb when all the, uh, the, the dot-coms started to go a little bit badly. Um, I was running those ads. And then at the end of the year, um, I decided that a year of grey skies and rain wasn't too much fun after going around the world. So I emigrated back, did the same, um, worked for a company over well, here. you came to Australia? I had emigrated back, yeah. yeah. So I'd lived here before briefly okay. when I was backpacking and, and run out of money and, and stopped somewhere to, to earn some money. Yeah. Um, and then um, came back and, and did the same over here for a company doing Jaguar Land Rover and Volvo buying. So I was buying on those campaigns and, again, working out, you know, if it was a web campaign or a newspaper web campaign, where do you want to be in the paper? Where do, you know, which papers do you want to be on what day? And when you said you said how it's impact, everyone forgets about impact. So when you're whether buying media and marketing, whatever it may be, you know, you think about how many, you know, how many impressions on Facebook, how many, mm. uh, um, how long is it going for, how many leads, what what number of people have seen it. But but what about how do you measure the impact? You know, you said that that's probably the most important. But it's overlooked. How do you create it, and how do you know if it's worked okay so let's say um i wanted to market to businesses which i do as a business you know we want certain companies to work for us i could get australia post to deliver very very cheaply for me um a flyer which is unaddressed to pretty much every business in australia and they'd all go out and everyone would get one and no one would read them because they'd either just get thrown in the bin receptionists would look at it go on the ceo's desk if if very lucky and it would go in the bit no one's really going to look at this it's low impact it's not very exciting I put it in an envelope and I've got your name and address written on it and it says private and confidential on the outside. I've got a bit more chance of it not getting thrown away, but the chances are it'll still get opened and thrown away. If it's in a gold envelope that says you have been selected for something exciting, I've got more chance of somebody excited about that hook. When I do marketing, I go all the way. So there was a company we wanted to work with a little while ago. So I designed something that showed them reaching their goal. I knew what their goal was going to be as a marketing organisation. And I knew they were going to struggle to do it. So I had a, a little cartoon of them doing that. And then I printed that on card on A, oh, what was it, A2? So it was massive. And then I hand-delivered it to their reception. And I had one, um, and I had them in envelopes, and I had one to go to every single one of the um, higher executives in that organisation. And it only just had our logo at the bottom. It didn't really tell them enough. All it showed them was them solving this business goal we knew they had. And then I phoned someone in there that I vaguely knew, and I said, did you receive something interesting in the post recently? He's like, yeah. I said, well, that was me. Like, well, everyone's been talking about this. What the hell is it? So everyone there was really excited to know what it was and how it was. So um, he said, come in, tell us. We, we, we want to get this. So I hadn't given them quite enough information, so they wanted more. And what and was the picture showing? Just it was uh, a cartoon of... It was them leveraging their information in a way that would enable them to show it was measurable. So they're, they're in the outdoor advertising industry, which is really hard to measure. Um, and it was a way for them to understand how to be a bit more data-driven and how to actually start to think about things like, you know, if they're going to have a billboard, how can they show um, an organisation if they're going to advertise on a billboard? Who lives in the area? How much of their target are they actually hitting? Um, and could they find a way to measure whether it's actually effective? And, and I knew that was a business problem they were facing because everyone was, so we, we just thought we could show them we could solve it. But we didn't tell them how we were going to do it. We just showed them what we were going to deliver and therefore they had to know a little bit more. Okay. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's media playing and buying. Um, I did it for cars. I found that a bit challenging because... If you if you imagine you're selling Range Rovers, um, and you make them, and your Range Rover itself, you've got a dealer network between you and the person that buys it. 
So if you go in and ask a salesperson and dealer, why did that person buy it? It's like, well, I've got a winning smile and I'm a great salesperson. He's not going to say it's because they saw a big billboard ad on the side of a building. Um, and so it was really hard to actually demonstrate the ROI. So um, I wanted to do something more measurable. So I, I moved into magazine ads for a little while and moved into sales, learned how to be a salesperson. And then to get more measurable again, I ended up working for a company called Dun & Bradstreet, which is now Ilium, mm-hmm. um, helping them to monitor. Oh, they changed. Yeah. What's that, it called? Ilium. It's been okay. Ilium for a few years now. Really? Yeah. The only time I ever worked with Dun & Bradstreet, I don't know how old I was, like 17 or 18, I was working at a finance company in an Aries. Mm. In a Rees team. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. So, yeah, they have a mercantile division yeah. and they have a credit division. And so if you think about an organisation like that, they're building a lot of data all the time through credit reporting and it's standardised information. So I help them monetize it. So a business like Cub could come to me and say, you know, I want people of a certain industry, a certain business size, and I want to know, you know, the name of the CEO. Can you pull a list like that out of the B2B credit reporting, which is all publicly available information from them? Um, and we, we would help them monetize that. And I liked it because it was – you could be targeted, but you could also be measurable. And so you, by by – by, uh, by saying you can help uh, businesses monetize it means so you can go get the data mm-hmm. from like Dun & Bradstreet or wherever you get it from and, and then you help them create strategies to market to that database. That's right, yeah. So when, well, within Dun & Bradstreet I actually sold just that data set um, and then I worked for a, a competitor of theirs later on, um, Equifax, and, and again help people to, to leverage the data that we held that we could sell to them but in such a way that it would actually work. And it was really good because you can you can demonstrate pure ROI on this. If you're sending out data, uh, using data to send out marketing material, so whether it's a phone call or a direct mail you're going to send, you know who you sent it to and then you know who becomes a customer. So in terms of being able to have a sort of attribution and understanding what's working direct marketing is perfect. I love it because you can completely measure it all the way through. Um, in two so you just need to be a little creative in terms of creating that impact because well, yeah. if there's no impact, people aren't checking their mail and things anymore. Well, but if there's impact. Yeah, that's right. And this can, is this is the challenge actually. Because um, it can get costly now then because, for example, if you've got a list of a thousand businesses that you want to reach to or reach, I guess you could break it up to a hundred a month and and spend, I don't know, even if it was up to a hundred bucks on a mm. hundred would be a lot, would it? Or would it be less? It really depends on what you want to do. If you're going to spend a hundred bucks a pop, then you want to be phoning to make sure it's still correct as well. Because yeah. as soon as someone builds <laughs> data, it starts decaying. So every single data set is slightly incorrect. Okay. But if you're, if you're spending a lot of money on it, then again, you need to make sure you've got impact. So there's an accounting company I know that's really, really good accounting company. And I asked him what he's done for impact before. He did a brilliant one. He sent everyone a, a remote control car, you know, like a $50 remote control car and said, here's a gift for you. Bit of fun, you know. Maybe your kids will enjoy playing with this. If you'd like to have the remote control for it, why don't you invite me in for a coffee and I'll give it to you? <laughs> so again, it was a hook and it was a good impact. Um, and it was fun working for those big those companies that had those big data sets. But the challenge is, you you kind of have to hit a sales target every single month, which is based on selling a lot of data, which kind of goes against the principles of core direct marketing, which is start small, measure, optimize, and grow. So. Um, I, oh, so you were working for the data company selling yeah, the data. That's right, yeah. So I actually worked directly for those organisations. So in 2009 when the GFC was hitting, um, I'd gone through some redundancies in different places. I'd actually jumped ship from DMB, gone, gone to a, a, a company that was selling CRM ERP software. Uh, they then started falling over because of the GFC. Um, I was brought into um, Equifax or Vida as it was called at the time so that I could diversify them away and from what is Equifax? Uh, another credit bureau. Okay. I'm monitoring his data. They'd another ask, data company. Another data company, yep. yeah. Um, they, they'd asked me to diversify them outside of credit card marketing a little bit into other areas as well. And I started doing that and I started to 
um, help them to find businesses that could work with the data and leverage it in different ways like charities, um, insurance companies um, that were non-traditional direct marketers from their perspective. But they wanted more redundancies again and, and they actually made my role redundant and asked me if I'd like to do something else in the organisation and I said, well, hang on a minute. I've been talking to these people for a while now. They're kind of excited about things. People buy people. They're not going to buy your organisation if I leave. Can I take a redundancy and can I please take some clients with me? Because they're not really clients as yet. They're not going to stay with you. Stay with you. They're not going to keep working with you. And they said yes, um, which was a real surprise to me. Um, so on the Friday I gave notice and they put in writing I could take some clients. On the Saturday I came up with the name Dataphoria, the cheesy name we've made had a good laugh about um on the on the sunday i built a website i used to build websites on the side when i was at uni to, to pay my way um on the monday i was phoning people and saying you're now a data for a client let me come and explain what that means you didn't ask anyone if they wanted to but i just sort of told them they were yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um and i was off and uh yeah it was it was frightening it was it was the gfc um my my wife at the time and i and we had the second baby on the way we had a mortgage to pay and there was a lot not a lot of jobs going around but I read something in the newspaper that was Richard Branson. He said, this is a really good time to set up a business. Everyone else is sacking salespeople. Everyone else is, is going to the little hidey hole and doing nothing. Now's the time to make a big impact, talking about impact. So if you go out and talk to everyone right now when no one else does, when, when, when things pick up, you'll be in front of them. And, and I had a really good crack at it and, and it went really, really well. So that was 12 years ago I set it up and wow. came, up with, came up with what it would mean. And so as a business we um, – we're basically a conduit between our clients and every type of marketing data that exists or every lead type that exists. So rather than having to go to 10 different companies and say, um, you know, tell me, I'll tell you about my business. You tell me what you can do. Show me your glossy PowerPoint presentation and tell me why you're the best, which everyone will tell you they're the best. You can come to data for and we're a data driven marketing agency, which means we sit like a media planning and buying agency on your side of the table, imagining that your money is our money and we're spending it as if it was, thinking in the long term and we, we say, okay, well, if this was my money, how would I spend it? So we can look at all the different data selection, uh, data options in market. We can work out which ones are actually most suitable for this and then we can build a really low-risk testing strategy to make sure that whatever we do at the end of each campaign, we don't just say it's a campaign that worked or failed. We say let's build it in some way that we can work out what works and what doesn't. And then when we know what does work, we can then reestablish the size of that universe or that, that, that channel and establish with you how many customers can you forecast to get over a period of time from the ones you're going to get a good ROI with, and then how do we keep running that campaign for you? Let's let's go back to um, just data companies in general and, and mm-hmm. data in general. So you said the, the different marketing data and all that type of stuff. First of all, there might be some listeners who don't know that there actually are companies who do nothing except for collect data. What type of data do they collect? What do they collect it for? You know, explain these companies like the Dun & Bradstreet and whatever the other one you said was equal, blah, blah. Equifax. Yeah. Equifax. Um, so they're, they're B2B providers. Um, you can probably buy B2C data from them as well. Um, people are collecting data for all sorts of reasons. So sometimes if you're a credit bureau, like a DMB, for example, you might be running credit reports for B2B. Um, and you therefore end up with a whole load of data and you realise you can, you can on-sell it. So you just have something that you can, you know, you've got an extra line of, 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 of revenue for your business. Other organisations build data purely because they build data. So, for example, we build data. Uh, we, actually, we actually run a couple of websites. Um, and, and funnily enough, um, we've, we've established two things. One is we can build quite possibly the best quality digital leads that exist in market. And the other thing is I will lose money every time I generate one. 
Um, but we still do it, which is a funny thing to, to say. Um, we, 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 we run a website, for example, called Good for the World, um, and we lose money every time we generate a lead. But what we do realise is because the leads are such good quality, when we push them into the, uh, the campaign with other lead sources that we have, the overall campaign goes so well that we retain our clients. It's a really good investment for us. But there, there's companies that, that, that generate data by well, – there's three types of data. There's compiled data. So that might be, for example, if you have B2C data, so consumer data, um, you could start with white pages data. It's just sitting there available. And then you say, okay, well, now I've got all this white pages data. What do I do with it? How do I work out if someone's around a campaign? It's great if you say, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the government. I want to know everyone that lives in a certain area. But generally somebody wants to market um, to people. So you can overlay data over the top. So um, EABS, for example, published the census information which means that you have aggregate level data. So you don't know Daniel Hakim lives in this apartment, this is how much money he earns. What you do know, though, is what the average income is in this area from the census. You do know, um, if you link it to real estate data, whether it's likely that he owns the, the property he lives in or if he rents it. You do know if you model with somebody's age roughly how old they are, um, which is, funnily, funnily enough, so a lot of people don't know that. So when you target people by age, if you haven't collected it in a survey... Um, you can model it based on how old they are. It's really hard if it, with a name like Alex or Daniel because they've been popular for a long time. But if your name was Ethel, chances are you're probably 80 years old, right? So there's all these different ways you can do modeling over the top and then you can start to build criteria. So let's pretend you're a solar company and you want to target people. Say, okay, well, what do you need if you're a solar company? So someone needs to own the house because you're not going to spend money on solar if, you, if you're renting it. Um, and it needs to be a house with a roof so it can't be an apartment. So you start taking things out that you know are bad for you. So you start honing in and targeting the right sort of people and then it might be, well, then it, you know, it's based on the way that fi people finance against a mortgage, so you need to make sure they're of a working age. And it might be that, that it's quite an expensive solution. So, you know, let's let's try to work out a way to extrapolate that using census information. And you might say, well, we don't want to sell to people that already have a solar panel. So you can use data that you've got from real estate um, websites to establish whether it said solar in the listing and you can exclude that. But so you so you're bringing up, in. A, there's, a, there's a lot of different data sources that you're having to use to kind of mm. come up with the last thing. That's what you guys do? Yes. So yeah, we, 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 I wouldn't be doing that. No, no, that's, that's <laughs> the thing. So we, we build the data sets and we, we, we go to people that own these data sets. Okay. Then there's also, I mean, there's other types of data sets as well. There's, there's direct response data, which is behaviourally targeted, which is where multiple organisations that have transactions with consumer put their data into a pool and then you build an RFM segmentation across it, so recency, frequency, monetary value. So how are people behaving, which is actually often much more predictive than who people are. So just because somebody's the right age and the right gender and, and that looks like your other customers doesn't mean they're going to respond to your direct mail. What's much more likely is they're going to respond to your direct mail if they respond to direct mail from someone else. Would you say this is what, kind of what you're describing is what Facebook has mastered and taken to the next level? This was the original version of collecting your data, your your information, your you know usage and hobbies and friends, and they've obviously gone to the next level with it. Well, they but have. With, with this, what you're describing is basically the data that there was before Facebook. Yes, and also, I mean, Facebook helps with this. Um, Facebook's an interesting one because you talk about those, you know, the impact. Um, I, was, I was watching a really interesting documentary last night and it was actually talking about how Facebook just makes everyone bloody miserable. It does, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, I don't have Facebook anymore and I, honestly I actually don't know many people who use Facebook mm. anymore. But but you still use their mediums like WhatsApp, Instagram, Well, you do. Whatever and, 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 and people are looking at it because they're trying to understand, you know, what's going on with other people's lives. But in doing so, they're showing a lot of information about them. So I, I, I don't know if you know much about the Cambridge Analytica stand, scandal. Oh, yeah. I, well, I, watched the Netflix, I watched the Netflix thing on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was really clever. I mean, in terms of marketing, it was pure genius to say, well, 
explain, explain it. Oh, explain yeah. the situation. Let's, let's say you're Donald Trump and you get elected and you had a finite marketing budget. So you say, how do I make sure that every dollar I spend on advertising is going to go a long way? So you say, okay, well, if I'm going to win a state because everyone in that state's really, really very much on my side anyway, I don't need to market a lot to that state. If somebody's in a state that was going to vote for Hillary Clinton, you know, if everyone there's going to vote for it, I can't do much about it. So I'm going to focus on swing states. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on the people in swing states that are swing voters that are sitting on the edge. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, well, if they're a swing voter, are they likely to skew for me or skew for Hillary? And if they're going to skew for me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start to run advertising talking about how important it is they vote for me, how important it is to go and vote, why they should come and vote for Donald Trump to get in. If they're going to vote for Hillary, if they do go probably, what I'm going to do is I'm going to disincentivize them from voting. I'm never going to get them to change and really come and go and vote for me. So I'll just make them feel sad about voting for her so they don't get out of bed, you know, they sit on the bum and, and watch television instead and just don't go and vote at all. Just don't go and vote. But the way they got the data to establish who you were and what you like to do is the unethical part. And this is, the, this is the point with data and this is where compliance is heading. You can't use data for purposes that it wasn't truly provided. So they did a survey asking people some questions that would enable them to understand, you know, what the profile was of donors and why they behaved in a certain way. But they, the T's and C's said, well, if, we're going to, if we do that, we can pull all your information, we can pull all the information of all your friends as well. So they only needed, a, I don't know, 150,000 people in, in America to fill this in. And they pretty much downloaded all the data from everyone in America and could work out who they were, how they were likely to vote. So it, it really has highlighted, and it's actually made it really difficult for people like me, it's highlighted how easy it is to collect data and how it can be used for unethical purposes. So since then, things have, you know, the, the, the bolts have been tightened a lot across the board. And things have become a lot harder, but in terms of compliance, in terms of compliance. So, so what are what what is the compliance around data now? So, for example, if I go, so um, if I come and 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 I say, Alex, let's get um, you know, let's get a list of business owners, so so we can um, go through them, discover who we think would be a good fit for the club, and and invite them to become a member. Are we able to do that, or what? What are, what are the compliance things around? So, that, or if I go to Dun and Bradstreet, buy a list of I'm selling, yeah, like you said, selling mm. solar. I want to buy a list of people who own houses in uh, upper class areas of whom, you know, uh, uh, pro the environment and can mm. afford to install the solar things. And um, um, I get that list. What's the compliance around it? Can, can I actually market to them? Can I email them? It's a, it's a good question. Um, and that, that, to be honest, is, is a big reason that people are choosing Dataforia now over other organisations because the amount of compliance work we do um, and it, 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 it used to be, to be honest, when the compliance thing started getting harder, it's just painful for me because I was thinking, oh, it's just getting harder and harder to source data. You know, this is difficult. But as things have got more and more difficult, I've realised it's actually a strength if you turn things around. So whenever something changes, you, you do your SWOT analysis and you work out, well, what are the opportunities? And the opportunity for me was if you're incredibly careful to be compliant at all times and you can show other people how to make sure they're compliant. You can build things like questionnaires, which we've done with the Fundraising Institute of Australia to help the charities in Australia to make sure they're compliant. Explain that. So we, we created an explainer document that helps people to categorise data to work out if it's compliant. So the privacy laws have changed a few times. They're going to change again. So the 1988 Privacy Act just literally said, if you collect data from someone, use it for the reason that it was provided. Don't do something iffy with it. So, 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 so I'll give I'll give an example of that if you like. When you go on really, this is the one that I reckon everyone will get, or maybe not anyone who looks at houses regularly. Mm. You know, when you go on realestate.com on the app, you submit one 
uh, you know, how much is this house? Mm. And then, bang, next minute you start getting phone calls from numbers you haven't got saved, emails regularly, text message, hey, you still looking for a house? Mm. Some guy named Ricky just sent me a voicemail. A voice, <laughs> voicemail. <laughs> so I'm laughing because I just remember thinking, what a moron. But he goes, I get a voicemail from this guy, Ricky. He says, eh, I hope Ricky doesn't listen to the podcast. Sorry, bro. But he goes, oh, uh, hey, Daniel, it's uh, Ricky calling. Give me a call back. Uh, Ricky from whatever really said agency is from. Give me a call back. I'm thinking that's all he said. I've, all I've done is submit a how much is this house, yeah. house worth. I probably got an email back. thought, yeah, cool. And then <laughs> Ricky's like, I'm his best mate. Like, hey, Dan, it's Ricky. <laughs> Fuck are you, man? And, and what's in it for him? What's in it for you? I mean, that's what people what? always forget. You know, what's, what's in it for you? Like, I, I always say to when, when I do sales training, Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. When you do sales training, you say, okay, when you start a phone call, you have to think three things. What's the other person at the other end? They want to know why the hell you're phoning them. What's in it for them? And and they want you to check it's a good time. So we start every phone call with a purpose benefit check. What is the reason I'm phoning you? What's in it for you? And is now a good time to call because it might be that you know. Yes, they're interested, but they might be at a funeral for all you know. You've got to check these things. Ricky didn't do that. He ought to get some sales training. No, yeah, well, Ricky, <laughs> I hope to God I actually don't know Ricky because I'm shocking with names <laughs> and people. So Prince I'm Hattie's hoping I don't know him. He's actually a friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a member. <laughs> yeah, he just lost a really good customer. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, shit. But, so, um, so, yeah, so back to compliance. So Well, no, I actually wanted to okay, – okay. we will get back to compliance, but I wanted to keep going with what you were going on, which was the phone call. Which, which is, hey, you, when, when you do a phone call, you need reason, you need... Purpose, uh, benefit, check. Purpose. What is the per- So literally you can start a call with, the, pur- the purpose of my call today is I wanted to talk to you about, you know, joining Cub, for example. Mm. Um, then you need to quickly say something along the lines of, you know, other Cub members have found, you know, during a time when they're being incredibly isolated due to COVID, the, and, and, and as it's an isolating thing to do anyway as, as, as an individual, you know, if you run a business, not a lot of people really understand... You know, we, we found it's a community where people come together to really learn from each other. It's now a quick time to talk about your path as a business owner. So if you've done those three things, what you've done is you've shown that you understand something about them. You've shown that you can provide a benefit. So when you then have earned the right to the next step, which is earning the right to advance and ask them, you know, can we have a chat? You've shown them that there's something in it for them. They're actually going to learn something from that phone call. Um, and that's where Ricky went wrong because why would you call him back? What's Ricky it almost you? played it too cool. He was like almost like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to expect he knows he knows me, you know, like as if I'm looking at who the real estate agent is when I'm looking at a house, you know. Oh, yeah, and it might, I mean, so if, if you've made an inquiry on a house and Ricky's allowed to phone you. Um, yeah, but, but if, that's a if, good example of when yeah. they are allowed to phone you and, when, and yeah. email you so when, and text when you. The, the original law said you can't use data, data for purposes it wasn't provided. And the example I've always given is imagine you run a BMW showroom. People come in and buy BMWs, which, which shows that, they're, you know, they're probably relatively well off. And they come in, they sign a contract, and they give you their information because they bought that car. And then you say, well, hang on a minute, I've got a mate that sells Breitling watches or, you know, Amiga watches or whatever it happens to be. He probably want to sell to them as well. So I'm just going to take all my customer data and give it to him. And I'm going to tell him that he's your market to those people too. Now, the people that bought the car weren't expecting that. And that, that goes against the original privacy law. Um, so you can't do that? No. And, that, yeah. that's, and then in 2014, the Australian privacy principles came in and then it made it a little bit, it took it a bit further. And this is where a lot of people actually still aren't doing the right thing. So in addition to having to do the right thing by people, you have to tell them what you're doing with their data when you collect the data. So you need to have a data collection statement. You need to notify people of an, a range of different things. So why are you collecting the data? Where are you going to store it? How they can opt out of marketing if third-party marketing is going to happen? 
how they can reach your privacy policy, how they can correct their data, if the data is going to go overseas. And there's this list of things you need to have in a privacy policy. And a lot of people just don't have any of it. In fact, well, how do you do that? Well, where you that's have, very unsexy, you know. Well, it, it doesn't sound very exciting. So mm. if you look at our website, the dataforia.com.au website, anywhere we collect data, we have a little thing that says notification statement. You hover over it, hover over it with your mouse, and it pops up and it shows you all that information. And then we have a privacy policy, and we also have an opt-out form in a privacy policy that helps people opt out at that point rather than having to try to figure it out. So you just need to be transparent. You need to tell people why you're collecting it if you're going to share it with someone um, and what you're going to do with it. So... There's three types of consent you can consider in terms of privacy under Australian law. There's, you can state it's impracticable to gain consent, which means the people's data is in white pages. You're going to phone them because you're a real estate agent. You're Ricky and you want to phone people in the local area. You found someone that lives in the street and you want to buy them, you know, get them to sell a house. You can state, well, it's impracticable to actually gain their consent. So what they'll do is at the first point at which they should, you know, contact them, they should be saying, by the way, I've got, got some data from you, uh, about you from a third-party source. Um, just let you know, you know, you can go to my privacy policy at any time. You can opt out, no problem at all. But look, I wanted to have a chat with you about your house. So it's the first time you can do that. That's where it's impracticable to gain consent. The second, second type is where… So if you can't, if it's impractical to gain consent… When you speak to them, you then just have to tell them. That's what you're supposed to do on every call. Yeah. I don't think there is a person on the planet that does that. Well, though. call centers do it. Microsoft do it. You know, okay. these big companies do it. But And it's really difficult. If you're making a one-on-one phone call, if I call, called you to talk about carbon, I wanted to sell something to you as a service, it would be a really strange call. But if you're making thousands of calls and you're Telstra, for example, you need to be doing these things. Yeah, that actually reminds me of, do you know when, like, I don't know who I was dealing with, but it was like American Express. Maybe it was like Telstra. And they're like, before, who was it? Anyway, some big company. Look, before we start this conversation, I do need to go through a few points. Hey, and you like literally aren't listening to any yeah. of the points. And then they get, okay, now we can have a conversation. It's like, yeah. what? what? And you probably got off to have a cup of coffee. Yeah, you have. You made a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it does make it a bit tricky. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of, you know, free public information. Um, the second way you can collect data is where you effectively under current privacy laws. You just notify them what you're going to do. So often when you sign up to something, like realestate.com.au might be like this, I haven't gone through their privacy policy, I don't know. But they it might notify it, you. It might, well, when, you give, when they take your details, it should say to you, we're going to use this data for third-party marketing. If you don't want to do it, this is how you can opt out of that. Um, and you can in, in Australia it's different in other laws, so GDPR is different. You, can't, you can do something called bundling consent in Australia, which means you can say to somebody – by giving me your information, you consent to, to us doing different things with your information. Here's how you can not do that. And then the third type is express consent. So you can have express one-to-one consent saying, yeah, I actually um, consent to hearing from you with marketing information. Tick a box, you know, I'm happy for you to do that. I'm happy for you to share it with third parties. I'm happy for you to email me, whatever it needs to be. Um, or you can opt into hearing people uh, for third-party marketing, which is one of the ways that you can get around it with a spam act, which is another law outside of privacy law people um, need, need to consider as but well. Basically what I'm taking is that it's a complex space and you're probably best off going to a professional. Like I would be best off speaking to you because there's obviously no chance that I'm ever going well, no, to be able and, to comply to anything. If you ask anyone, is your data compliant, the first thing they're going to say is yes. Um, and here's a glossy PowerPoint presentation about why our data is the best in market. If you ask Dataforia which sources are good and which are not about the ones you're already using, um, We'll tell you half of them are probably non-compliant. We reject a lot of websites that we, we generate data from. Um, 
we, we say will generate – well, we've worked out the best way to do it is to go through their privacy policy and their data collection statement and say, if you want to start collecting data for us, here's an order form, uh, and the order form has a caveat, which was you're going to add these terms to your privacy policy. You're going to add these terms to your notification statement. So we go through and I actually audit them and tell them what they need to add to it if they're going to collect data for us. So if you and you, so let's talk about data collection. So you you collect your own data as well, right? So you you can yeah. run a campaign for a company. For example, I've always felt like you know the awards that the Telstra Business Awards and the whatever awards there are. I mean, every big company has an EOI and Optus mm. has an award. They all have awards. I've always thought that that's just kind of like it. Or even, you know, the CEO Sleepout. Great cause. Mm. Love the CEO Sleepout. Um, in fact, one of our members in Melbourne, uh, Chris Christoffi, is basically like the face of the CEO Sleepout Melbourne. But I've always felt that that was a good data, that, that, that probably the underlying thing on top of being good thing is data collection for all of those things. Let's get a list of all the businesses that submit for this and the business owners, their names, their emails, their mobiles, uh, and let's use this for whatever we need. Well, that's right. So um, let's say you're doing the CEO sleep out and you get a load of CEOs to go along. You you might not even make any money as a charitable organisation on running the CEO sleep out. You make some, obviously, but where the real money is is that you've generated that information, you've collected that data, and then you can leverage it. So you can go back to Daniel and say, look – would you as an organisation want to support us, you know, with, with a regular amount of money or, you know, uh, some sort of event you can run for us? Or would you like to share um, the benefits of what we do with all of your members? Um, or, you know, with our websites, you know, that we, we run with organisations, it's often we collect data on behalf of charities um, or electricity companies or solar where it's saying, you know, we're going to give you something, you can enter a competition, you can win something, you can get some free information, you can get a white paper on learning something. Um, and in return, the value exchange is that we're going to collect your data and you're going to get marketed to with something that's relevant. So, so I mean, businesses uh, could think about finding leads in a sense of rather than rather than um, maybe uh, spearing a fish, you know, using a net, letting mm. the fish, you catch a multiple fish at once, letting yeah. them swim to you and put a bit of bait. Oh, I guess that's what bait's for. It's, it, <laughs> and it's, it, it sounds great. Um, it's really hard. As I said, you know, as somebody that's worked in this industry for 20 years, I generally lose money when I'm collecting leads myself. Okay. And the reason is I only do it for maybe two, three organisations in parallel. The idea is if you want to build leads for organisations, it works well if you do it in a cooperative manner. So you collect one individual and you ask them lots of things they might be interested in and that turns into leads for lots of people. Um, it's very, very easy to build a website, spend a whole load of money on media, build a cons- customer journey and then just make no leads and spend a whole lot of money, mm-hmm. which is why it's a good idea sometimes to outsource. You need to focus on what you're good at. So, so, so it is easier to go buy the data, basically. It, yes, generally, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I just wanted to then go uh, to to, to um, the the first thing you actually want to speak about that we we're talking about before the episode started, which was making sure you ha- you actually know who your client like when you're getting data or get the right data. Yes. So, um, <clears throat> as as other people have, on your podcast have mentioned, you you have to ask two questions when you're thinking about running a marketing campaign. Who are my customers and why do they buy from me? Um, and those two questions, the first questions I always ask in a, in a, in a meeting with a client, and, and it's funny because they sound like really, really easy questions to answer, but the more you delve into it, people don't necessarily know. So the who is the really, really interesting part. Um, and this is where trying to be your own analyst can sometimes be a bit dangerous. So there's a difference between what, what is known as data mining and data profiling. Data mining means looking at the data you hold. So everyone's collecting data. Everyone's data-driven now. You know, for example, Cub, I'm sure you're looking at 
how many um, – you're asking questions Industry like, breakup, revenue breakup, exactly. staff breakups, let, locations, let, house, exactly. office, so let, engagement levels. Let, let's say, based on exactly that, you look at it on industry. Now, you could then – you could run a segmentation that says based on data mining, let's look at all the different industries that we have members in and let's see which is the biggest one. And you might say, fantastic, we've got – the biggest industry for us is manufacturing. 20% of our customers are in manufacturing, which is more than any other one. We should go after manufacturing. That's the way to go for us. And there's two things that might go wrong with that. The first is it might turn out if you haven't, if you haven't profiled that data, if you haven't compared it to a, a larger data set like all of the businesses in Australia, you haven't worked out the bias in the data set. So you haven't worked out what, on what basis you're really profiling. So if it turns out 20% of the businesses you have as customers are in uh, manufacturing, but actually it might turn out, say, 40% of Australian businesses are in manufacturing. You might be half as likely to attract a manufacturing company as another company. So we build something called indexing. Um, I, I can share if anyone ever reaches out to me um, how to do it yourself. There's some, a simple mathematical formula where you look at the bias between it. So we, we've, done this for, uh, we've done this for an energy company, for example, where we looked at who are their customers, which ones are they losing to a competitor, and then what are the comparative differences between the ones they're losing versus all of their customers and all of their customers versus all of the, the people in Australia so they can start to understand the difference. And that's the key is the difference. The sex po second point might be um, manufacturing is actually, you know, you are really well indexed against it. Maybe it's 40 and 20 is it's still the other way around. Then you've got to ask yourself, well, how do they become your customer as well? So if it, is it a case you had a sales guy that, that used to work in the wholesale trade or, or in some services to manufacturing? manufacturing and they had loads of mates manufa of manufacturing and they bought them all in as customers and then you say well we should be targeting manufacturing it might be your campaign's going to go really badly because you they're not all your mates they only talk to their mates and therefore it isn't great for you so you have to start to think about not only who your customers are and how they compare to the greater market but also why they become your customer and then the um why do they buy from you that's that's where you need to start putting yourself in the shoes of the customer and thinking what is it they're buying so is it a case that they're buying um for, for your membership, for example, is it a case that they're buying the ability to network to other members or is it a case they're actually buying the ability just to make new friends or, or have a social event or just, you know, get out of the house on a Friday afternoon, whatever it happens to be? And that's where you have to start to try to understand your customer journey and then think about what it was that brought them in or why they actually signed up. So you should be really understanding that customer journey and then mapping all your marketing back to it and then thinking about such a thing as, you know, what channel am I going to go for? Am I going to go for a marketing list? Am I going to go for an advertising on the radio or whatever it needs to be? And how do you... How do you actually map out that that journey or, or get that information? For example, it, I mean, it does sound easy. Who are my customers? I mean, I could probably answer that question exceptionally well, but why do they buy from me? Now, I can answer it well, but not as well as the first question mm. um, because when it comes to building your business owner's network or, or building relationships with, with the other leaders, there tends to be uh, multiple reasons someone mm. wants to do that. Mm. For example, there's a lot of people uh, who, like yourself, maybe migrated uh, to Australia and uh, they have their business and they haven't really built a strong network here in Australia of, of other business owners. Yeah. There's some people that uh, at the start of their uh, journey, they're in their maybe their third year of their business, they're growing well but they're still early and they want to surround themselves with other people maybe that are – uh, can share knowledge with them on how to make sure they keep growing well and they, they go to the next level. And that's they right. And that, that's where, I mean, to, doing podcasts like this is a brilliant time to ask a question because, I mean, part of this is you have to survey people, you have to ask them. So the reason that I became your customer was the second reason. Um, when I set up a company, it was terrifying 
that I wouldn't have a boss anymore because you're used to learning from people above you. And I needed to have people I could learn from. I needed to work out somebody that I could bounce ideas off and say, you know, I've got this problem, what do I do? And so funnily enough, um, before I knew Cub existed, this was 12 years ago and it didn't exist 12, 12 years ago, I decided that I would effectively have kind of mentors but unofficially. So I worked out people that I aspired to be like and people that had probably gone through challenges I'd have and I'd, I'd, I'd give them a call, people I knew um, in some way, and I'd give them a call and, and kind of, you know, blow a little bit of smoke up the bum and sort of say, oh, you know, you, you've done really well, I'm really impressed by you. Um, I wonder if I could take you out of lunch and learn how you've, you've, you've solved some challenges. And I used to just go out and take people out of lunch all the time, but it's really hard to find the time to do that. You join Cub and then you sit in a room with a load of people where, like you say, you know, that they've gone through those challenges. You sit in a core group and you find the challenges that you're facing now, chances are someone else has gone through and they'll tell you if you're sweating the small stuff, which you can't do in other areas. So when you ask the, you know, why do they buy from you, there's, there's two things you're asking. You're not just asking, though, why do they buy from you? What are they buying? You're also asking why they're not buying from your competitors. Why do they choose you? So, you know, why is it that they're joining Cub and they're not going to a cheaper option, which might be, you know, the local business chamber? Maybe they haven't had a great experience with that. What, what is it, you know, they're buying? And a lot of people, when they're buying B2B, they're not buying what you think. They might be buying that they think they're getting a great deal. They might be thinking they're getting a great discount. They might be buying the prestige with being a, cl- a Cub member. They might be thinking, you know, it's an ego-related thing. So you don't really know. It's, it's People make a transaction, but it's the emotion behind it that really come down to it. And that, that's the emotion you need to understand to then drive the engagement and that's where the impact comes in. That so impact needs to link back to that, that, that emotion to that's the actually going to drive it, yeah. So, and, and there may be different emotions. Mm. You have to create different impacts, I guess. Exactly. And that's so why... It, and is, that's quite, why that's, it is tricky, really. There, there is an element of, like when it comes to that, there is an element of um, not guessing, but there is a grey area. It's not complete. Well, that's, that's where testing comes in. One plus in. one. So this is, as I said, everything we do is measured, Right. So if you think it's maybe, – maybe there's two or three reasons that are core reasons that people join your, your group. Um, you don't know which one it is. And you also don't know. Just because it is a reason doesn't mean that you can market it. Mm. People might need to find you based on a critical mass of, of challenges they're having in their life before they do it. But if you're going to work it out, that's where you run a test. You run three different creative campaigns. So you might say, why did you join? Uh, to uh, make new friendships with uh, business owners, uh, to gain knowledge and advice to help you – grow from, again, other business owners mm. or to find new business opportunities, whether they be clients, whether they be partnerships, whether they be investments. And, and those, so they're all three. One, they're all one th- two, three, or all of above. Well, that's right. So they're three reasons, right? And those three reasons probably resonate with a lot of business owners. So you could run three campaign creatives in a testing matrix against, you know, different industries and business sizes. And what you could do is you could have all those three, but you could have one of them as a headline and a different headline on the next one and a different headline on the third one. So you do three different creatives. And then you know Alex Harding, you know, me, receives one of your creatives in a campaign. And you know that at the top of it, it was make friends. And you know that at the top of one someone else got, it was, you know, build your network. And then what you do is you measure, you work out what was the conversion ratio on the three different creatives. So you work out when you get your 15 new customers off the back of it or your 150 or whatever it happens to be, which creative worked best. So when we run a campaign, we don't at the end of it just say, did the campaign work, yes or no. We're running a campaign for you. At the end of it, we'll say, what business size goes well for you? What's your sweet spot in terms of outbound marketing? And that might be not based on really who's going to benefit most, but just how easy it is to get through a gatekeeper. We might know what industry is going well, what creative work well, what time of the week sending something out goes well. So we, we end up putting these funny little codes on the end of each um, communication. Clients then send us back the codes if it's an outbound marketing campaign and we can help them to understand and optimise. So it basically is outbound marketing. It's outbound marketing's version of 
A-B testing or split testing. It's like, exactly like, that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and that it's, they it's, do on Facebook now. You know, you put yeah. up two ads with slightly different text, see which one does better. That's right. So and the principles yeah. have always been there. They're just they're – just, um, well, you know what's interesting though? Like someone like myself, I mean this is how this conversation ended up happening is because Cub's going through a process at the moment where you, you, you know, you get – everyone's forgotten about more traditional marketing mediums. Mm. Which work. Yes. And everyone's gone towards this social, sorry, the digital marketing means, which obviously it could too. Mm. But it's almost like, well, wait a second, sometimes you've satur- you saturate the digital, you need to look for other mediums. And there's all these great mediums that have always existed and always probably will, of which you've never used or you've never tapped in or accessed. Yes. And if I was to look back, so I think that's a very important lesson. Like there's all these mediums that you can be doing and, and ways to be approaching people. It just doesn't have to just be Well, it's, 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 a bit sc- it's a bit scary though when you do that because some people are now saying Facebook's expensive, TikTok's a lot cheaper, and then they're plowing money into TikTok and they're not considering, well, am I going to get good customers out of that or am I going to get probably 14-year-olds that are looking at it? That, I'll, you know, it's, it's I'll tricky. tell you my theory though. It, it, well, so things I've liked and haven't liked. Mm. One, something that Cub's done, and maybe some of the listeners have experienced this, is we've gone through waves. Like there's been a LinkedIn wave. Then we take a break of that and we go into a, a social wave. And then we take a break of that and we go into a referral wave. And, you know, you just kind of focus and then you go back to LinkedIn, which is you now kind of fresher again. Uh, we've exhausted LinkedIn, so we're <laughs> going out of that wave. Yeah. But, but that's one thing. The other thing that I've hated about um, digital ads is that you almost have no control and there's not scalability. I feel like, for example, if you get 10 leads, sorry, if you get a hundred leads and you've spent 10 grand, mm. uh, if you spend 20 grand, that doesn't guarantee you're getting 200 leads. No, you get a d- point of diminishing return with that. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you do, um, um, if, if I send out a hundred invitations uh, to my database, to their, to their offices, mm. uh, and I work out from that hundred invitations, uh, you get, 10 members, mm. okay, well, I can send 200 invitations yeah, now get and 20. get 20 members. It's, it's, a, it's a closer guarantee. That's right, and it's, it's the opposite. Which I like, it's more benefit. control. It's, it's reverse economies of scale, isn't it? And, and that's the strange thing with this. I, I would say rather than running one thing and then another and then another, I'd be always running, I'd have an always-on marketing campaign where you're running everything relatively small all the time, same as we do. So let's say we're doing a lead generation campaign. So our campaigns are a little bit more traditional. People are generally sending a letter to somebody or they're making a phone call off the back of some data we provided them. Um, and we run multiple sources all the time. And what we find is the source quality will go up and down according to how our sources are incentivizing what, what it, you know, the sign-up practice or whatever it needs to be. But if something's quality has gone down, what you don't do is you don't turn it off. You just turn it down. And you imagine it like an old 1980s hi-fi with a graphic equalizer. You just take it down to, you know, 0.25 out of 1, for example. And then you monitor what works well. And when something's working well, you scale that up and you scale the other ones down. But you don't ideally start and stop. What other services do you actually provide? Like what are, what are the services you provide? So um, we, we predominantly provide data and leads. So if you have a call centre, for example, uh, whether it's B2B or B2C, we can provide leads at different levels of engagement. So literally it's just this is a cold list of people or businesses that meet your criteria right through to this is a person. Um, so, for example, for a charity, we... We ran a campaign where we actually built with a partner a website purely for them to educate them on the um, different reasons people are homeless. So we wanted them, people to understand homelessness so they'd understand what the charity did. Um, And that that engagement enabled people to understand actually the biggest reason for homelessness is around domestic violence. And that 
then enabled them as a, an organisation when they called them to work out how to explain to people that domestic violence is causing homelessness and it needs to be solved. That's a very high level of engagement lead. Um, we, we also run analytics, um, so we, we do that data profiling for people. So again, you know, let's say you've done your data mining and you think you know about your, your customers and you've, you've looked at that in, in, a, in a sort of the vacuum of your own data set. We can actually take that data in, even if you don't have the data collected on it, and you just say, here's a load of people, here's a load of business names and addresses. We don't know anything about them, we just know their customers. In the back end, we can link that to data where we have industry and number of employees, and then we can build a profile. Yeah. So like Cub could give you the data we have, and then hmm. you analyze that data and give exactly. us back, hey, this is what you should be doing. Yeah, and then we could give you then organizations that are lookalikes, people that look like them, you know, like you can do on Facebook lookalikes. We, we just... All these things are not new concepts. No, I, but that's what that's what I like, though. That, that's what I think is so important about this episode is that people need to remember there's not just, hey, go buy – there's not just digital marketing and or when you get bigger billboards, TV and other, you know, the traditional mediums. There's also database mm. – da- data – and um, um, what would you call it? Outbound marketing, mm. traditional outbound marketing, which is consistent. It works well. It's been done for centuries. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, it's, it's and, and it's it's relatively inexpensive either. It's probably cheaper um, than spending. I don't know what people spend on on digital marketing. And it doesn't cost much to find out if it works because you can start very very small. So you just have to work out how many customers you want yeah. or expect to get, roughly what conversion ratio you need, and then you build a testing matrix around it. If you ask that who's your customer and why, why do they buy from you when you look at any marketing option and you take a step back as to are they going to be on TikTok really? You know, is Cub, could, should Cub advertise on TikTok because you read in the AFR that TikTok's cheaper than Facebook? Chances are no, you're going to be reaching the kids of, of people that should join your club, not them. So it doesn't matter how cheap the advertising is and how exciting it is and how many people are taking it up. It probably doesn't really service your addressable audience. So mm-hmm. you need to you need to be, yeah, taking a bit of the gloss away from marketing choices. And so, I mean, you're obviously an incredibly smart human being. Do you read much? How do you, how do you I guess, what are hobbies you have that uh, help you continually grow? Um, I do read. Um, I've been reading a brilliant book recently called Resilience, uh, which which helps people as a business leader to, to think about, or anyone in a business, just to think about how to manage their their time, their energy, how to deal with different sorts of challenges that might go on in their life. Um, funnily enough, if you join our business, there's there's two things that happen. One is before you go to an interview, do a math test. Um, you mean if someone's to apply for a role, if, a yeah, job if you're going to apply for a role, for yeah, um, they have to do a math test to, to get it, an interview, which is interesting because um, we expected it to knock out about 10%. It knocks out about 90%. Oh, without a doubt. Um, and and, it, and it's, it's basic problem solving. The other thing is when you join, you have to read a number of books. And the first one is Who Moved My Cheese? which is, I don't know if you read it, it's, it's really fun. It takes you half an hour to read. Um, and it's about little people and little mice that are in a maze and they're stuck. And, and every day they go along to the right place in the maze where they've worked out where the cheese is. And they get there and, and, and the cheese is there and they're, they're happy. And then one day they get there and the cheese has moved and they don't know what to do. So one of them just stays there and just, just goes there every day expecting it to come back and it doesn't. And the other one starts to think, well, what else can I do? And it's really funny because you think to yourself, you know, why, why are you teaching people to worry about cheese in a maze? But problem solving is the biggest thing you can do in advertising. There's so many moving parts. Everything goes wrong all the time. And if, I, if, if, if people can't understand, understand they need to adapt, then, um, yeah, it's, um, it, it's a big challenge. So funnily enough, when, when I go out to those lunches and, or, I, or I catch up with someone in the club that I'm interested in and I find really interesting, I'll always ask, what have you read that's good? And I've read some brilliant books over the years that have really, really helped me a lot. Well, you had Rich Dad Poor Dad as one of the, I guess, yeah, pivotal l- books. L- books. Love in your life. that book. Um, My dad gave me that when I was like twelve. 
You're lucky. He said, you got to read that. That's, that's good for you. I was like, all right. That's, that's probably the first book I ever read other than Pokemon. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. And it's, it's funny because a lot of people, when they read it, think I need to then go become a property investor because that's what he did. But I took something very different from it, which was um, when you take a job, don't take a job because you want to have uh, an easy commute or they have a shiny office, or they do drinks on a Friday afternoon, or you're going to get another 10 grand. Ask yourself, in five years, what do I want to be doing? So for me, I always wanted to run a business. I didn't really want to have a boss. Um, I liked the idea of having a business I could build around my own ethics and my own goals. Um, And so every time I took a job, I I knew that it needed to teach me something that would enable me to become a business owner and a good one. So I, I took roles where I moved sideways or backwards. I wanted to understand finance, cash flow, marketing, and sales. So I kept making sure that when I took a new job, it was teaching me something I didn't know. And so it's a brilliant book on that basis. I love that. And um, to the listeners, if you want to find out more about Mr. Alex Harding uh, or get in contact or visit Dataforia, the company that's named after the feeling you get when data (laughs) works for you, go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you'll find it all there. Um, Ricky, if you're listening to this, send me a message on Instagram at the.danielhakim. I'd love to have a chat with you. <laughs> All right, everyone. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. You're actually incredible. Thank you. You're actually, uh, very few people have said so many words that I don't understand, but I, but, but, <laughs> but I got there. Thank you. Uh, did you enjoy it? Very much. Thanks. Awesome. Really, really good. To the listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show.